We're going to be in Genesis uh, 28. Genesis 28. It's on page 22. In those Bibles near the seats around you, Drew Collins is going to read. So as you guys, as he makes his way up here, you guys please stand for the reading of God's Word. All right, let's read. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May He give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham." Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven." So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your Word. Your book of Genesis is the book of beginnings where we, we see the beginnings of many things. And here, we are continuing in the story. And with Jacob, we will see the beginning of the nation of Israel. And the covenant promises passed down on from Abraham to Isaac to now Jacob. And they have ramifications for us. So let us have eyes to see this morning and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, go ahead and be seated. 
Well, again, we're going to do a little non-traditional Palm Sunday message. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of the Passion Week. And and um, uh, as I said earlier, that this is a, a momentous week. This is like the, the pinnacle of the Christian calendar where all this Bible, all these stories come together for the, for the purpose to highlight the one storyline, the one theme in the Scripture, and that's Christ's redemption for all of mankind. Um, we're going to put videos up on our website and on Facebook um, going through each day, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, and what happened in this week so you guys can kind of follow along. That builds up to, again, Good Friday and then Easter. Palm Sunday quickly is when Jesus entered Jerusalem as the as the king uh Jews from all over the world are come to this festival and they're they're coming thousands upon thousands to Jerusalem and here they're hearing the stories about Jesus and all of a sudden they see Jesus on a donkey on the mount of olives and he's starting to come down and they start to shout and scream to one another back and forth they say hosanna blessed be he who comes in the name of the lord and their hope at the beginning of the week was that this Jesus would save them. Save them physically from the captivity of Rome. That's the Passion Week. That was their heart. Well, we're actually going to go all the way back to Genesis 28, to the, the beginning that makes Palm Sunday possible. The beginning of the nation Israel. Jacob, as we know, in a couple weeks in Genesis chapter 32, when we get to that, we'll, well, God will change his name from Jacob to Israel. Uh, Jacob will have 12 sons. They will become the 12 tribes of Israel. So when we turn on uh, the news and we hear about the nation Israel, they all come from this guy's family lineage. And in particular, the one that comes that we've been looking for since Genesis chapter 3, the seed or the offspring of the woman that would indeed save humanity from our sins. Well, this person will come from the tribe of Judah, one of Jacob's sons. And that king is Jesus, as we know. He is the triumphal king who will not only save Israel, but he also is going to save the world. And he's not going to do it through political reformation or military conquests, but he's going to be doing it by being the stairway to heaven. And that's what we see in our text today, that Jesus Christ is the way to God, the Father. And we're going to dive right in. We have three points, uh, a familiar command, a familiar, um, uh, familiar, holy cow, what is it? Rescue, holy cow, I can't even read my own writing. And a failure, a familiar response. We're going to spend most of our time in point number two. One and three are going to be real quick. Point number two is we're going to spend a whole lot of time in there. So first, a familiar command in Genesis 28, one through five. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Now, we've seen this over and over again. We see this whole section even with Esau, how Esau sees how he blessed Jacob and he sent him to go find a wife because he knew that the two Hittite wives that he have was, was not pleasing to Jacob. And so we see this thing about having a, a, a wife or a spouse from a particular clan of people. And it's a, it's a big deal. Uh, Abraham got um, the command in Genesis chapter 4, by finding a wife for, uh, for Isaac. You guys remember the story. He sent the servant to go find Isaac a wife from not from the Canaanites, but from his clan. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why is God making a, such a big deal about this? And it's not only a big deal back then, but it's also a big deal for us. 
And first what I want to say is what it's not saying, what the scripture is not saying. Because we have some people that take this text and other texts and say that you cannot marry outside your ethnicity, right? They say if you're a Jew, there's no way you could marry a German. Or if you're, you're Chinese, there's no way you can marry a Korean. That just doesn't happen. And they use this text to make that case. And that's just false. That's just bad exegesis. This is not what this text is saying whatsoever. It's not about that you can't marry um, people from different ethnicities or different nations. The emphasis is on marrying someone that has a different worldview than you. That's the point that the, he's trying to make. Because if I was just talking about physical descent, just think about that for a second. Most of us in here who are married probably couldn't be married if we are looking for someone that lined up ethnicity-wise with us, that lined up perfectly with us. Because most of us are, are, are a mixed breed, so to speak, to take some canine languages. We're not purebreds, right? Um, for me in particular, I'm Italian, I'm Scottish, I'm Irish, and I'm Russian, right? So how, how, if I'm trying to find a woman that lines up, how, how much, how tr- much trouble am I going to have finding another Italian, Scottish, Irish woman, right? Like me, my wife and I have been married for over 20 plus years. We go and our first date would have been really, really awkward, right? If this was the case. Because I say, okay, let's just talk about our ethnicities, okay? I'm Italian, she's Italian. You're like, all right, good, one for one, right? The next thing is like, well, I'm, I'm Russian. She's like, well, I'm Spanish. Done, right? Date over. Move on to the next person, right? And especially today with all the 23andMe and Ancestry.com, I mean, you got like 10 or 12 ethnicities in you, right? With like you're 57% Italian, 23% Scottish, and it just goes down. You, you would never find a wife. So obviously, this is not what it's talking about. Again, the purpose to marry someone that has the same worldview as you. That's what God is, 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 is pointing out here. Same values, the same, the Lord, the same God that you worship. It was extremely important for Abraham and Isaac because they were living in times as, as we were, where there was such a, a diversity of worldviews. And they wanted to make sure that the worldview, the covenant promises were passed down to their children, whose children, whose worldview would not lead them away from the one true God, but that would lead them in the stream of the one true God, and that they would carry on the covenant blessing. Marrying someone with a different worldview could, and usually does, um, lead children away from the one true God and the covenant promises. So Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are being extremely careful they don't want to lose this distinction that they are the, the line, the tree that's going to carry on the covenant promises. So they must marry within their own clan. And the principle still is around with us today. The New Testament calls this being, not being unequally yoked in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you're a single in here looking for a spouse, you want to find someone that has the same worldview as you. You want to find someone that loves Jesus, that loves the gospel, that loves God's word. Because Marriage is, is tough enough in and of itself without this. And you want to be on the same page on, on, on what does it mean to be a husband and a wife? What are the roles? What are the responsibilities? How are we going to spend our time? How are we going to spend our treasure? How are we going to raise our kids? This is where we want to, again, be on the same page. The one true God we want to reveal in Jesus Christ. That's our, that's our view, the grid in which we should pick our spouse. It doesn't matter ethnicity regarding your spouse, but do they love Jesus? Are they in the family of God? Because this is where the blessing is. This is where the blessing is. We see as we move on that 
Jacob obeys as he's sent out in Genesis 28, 3. It says, God Almighty blesses you and will make you fruitful and multiply you so you may become a company of people. So, so Isaac blesses Jacob and sends him off. And second, we see a familiar rescue. And again, this is where we're going to spend most of our time. Look at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, if you've been with us, we've been going through the book of Genesis, and I want to point out a couple quick reminders of Jacob and who he is. First, as we, we know that Jacob was a, was a homebody, right? He was not an outdoorsman like his brother Esau. We saw those contrasts in, in Genesis chapter 25. When, when the kids were growing up, Esau would go out to the sandlot and play ball with the boys. Uh, they would read, you know, outdoor men's magazine. They'd read Bowhunter magazine. They'd shop at REI and they'd shop at Cabela's. That was Esau and his clan. Jacob was not that. Jacob was, was a homebody. He stayed at home. He was a, a mama's boy. He didn't run to the sandlot with the boys. He stayed in the kitchen with mom. He didn't run to and shop at uh, REI. He shopped at Bed Bath & Beyond. This was Jacob, right? Yes, this was Jacob. And so for his father then to send him out on this journey to find a wife, the journey that he sent him out to is a 500-mile journey. It takes him from southern Jerusalem to really modern-day Iraq. That's where Jacob has to go to find a wife from his clan. And we know he's not an outdoorsman, so he's going by himself. It's a a dangerous trip for anybody to take this trip. He's doing it, and he's doing it all by himself. So if he gets attacked by a wild animal, if he gets attacked by thieves, he'll be in a lot of trouble. Why? Because he doesn't know how to wield a sword. He knows how to wield a spatula, right? And so he's going to be in trouble. We also see his inexperience as an outdoorsman because he chooses a rock as a pillow, right? Now, I, I said, okay, I wanted to make sure that that's a correct translation in the Hebrew. So I went to the word in the Hebrew to see if it really was a rock and not something else, right? And guess what it is? It's a rock, right? So Jacob is not the sharpest tool in the shed when it comes to the outdoors. So that's the first thing we understand about Jacob is that he's on this journey alone and it's not it's not his cup of tea, so to speak. But secondly, um, there's something that's honorable about Jacob. He's obeying his daddy. He's, he's following his daddy's orders to go and find a wife from their clan. But he's also, we have to be reminded that he's following his mom's orders, right? His mom was scared because he just stole the blessing from Esau, his twin brother. And Esau said, as soon as my father dies, I'm going to kill my brother. And so his mom says, you have to leave. You have to flee. And so we also see that he's obeying his mom. And so we also see a, more of a coward in Jacob. He's fleeing. He's fleeing like a criminal because he just stole something. So there's a mixed bag. And wh- what do we know about Jacob up to this point is that he's a, he's a liar. He's a cheater. He's a deceiver. He's very dysfunctional. He's a massive sinner. He's the chief of sinners. And to the point of dragging the Lord's name to bring about his deception. There's no indication whatsoever in Scripture up to this point that Jacob has worshipped, that he loves the Lord, that he's prayed. But in fact, it's the exact opposite. He's a rebel. And he's using the Lord and his name to get what he wants. And it's with this background that the Lord meets Jacob here, out in the desert. It's here that the Lord seeks Jacob and initiates I believe, saving faith. 
Remember, Jacob's about 70 years old. He's probably in this day walked about 40 miles, so he's tired. It's pitch dark. He's out by himself. So he lays down on a rock and he falls asleep. Falls asleep. The next thing we know is that the Lord interrupts his dream. Interrupts him with a dream. Verse 12. As he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder. A better, a better translation might be staircase or, or steps of stairs. Uh, so here we see we have the original staircase to heaven, right? Set up on the earth, and at the top of it, it reached heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, I want to stop right there, and I don't want to get in the weeds, but I want to make some mention about angels and dreams and, and what we believe here at the crossing. First, at the crossing, we believe in, in angels. We believe that there's good angels called angels, and we believe there's bad angels called demons. We believe that there's a spiritual world out there that we cannot see that is warring against one another. And it's actually warring against for your soul and to my soul. So we believe in angels. We also believe here at the crossing that God, and in particular in the Old Testament, speaks to his people, to his children, through dreams and through visions. We'll see this as we go on, and we'll see he speaks to, to Joseph through dreams. We'll see it in the book of Daniel. We'll see it in Isaiah. So that the Lord speaks to his people through a variety of means, and here we see dreams. We believe that. But here in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, the, the time, the period that we live in, we believe that Jesus and God primarily speaks to us through his word, the gospel in Jesus Christ, as Hebrews said. But we also believe that he can and still does speak through dreams. In particular, um, if you uh, know any missionaries from closed countries, in other words, closed countries meaning like Iraq and Iran where Christianity is not allowed, it's, it's, it's an offense, it's against the law, you'll be, you'll, you'll be killed if you try to preach the gospel, make a proselyte. We hear a tremendous amount of, of, of conversions through Muslims through dreams where the Lord meets them and has a dreams and shares the gospel and shows them their sin and they repent on the true Savior. And we see, we see the Lord work in people's lives through that. So, so we believe that. But again, primarily, especially here in the United States, we believe that God speaks through His Word, speaks through the gospel. But God could also speak to you and me through a dream. We, we don't discount that. But more often than not, that's not what speaks to us in our dreams, and we all dream every night, is, is, is more often than not is Cafe Mexicali and not the Lord, right? And so those are just some, some, some things that we want to put on there. So back to the text. Genesis 28, now look at verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And what we'll see in verses 13 and 15, he, he gives the same promises. The Lord gives the same promises to Jacob as he did way back in Genesis 12 to Abraham. And then as Abraham passed on to Isaac, the next general lead, generational leader, the keeper of the covenant promises. And I love this. I love how God speaks to Jacob. He speaks to him with words of grace and affirmation. First look at it. He says, first, he says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. You see, the biblical worldview, the covenant is being passed down from generation to generation, from a grandfather to a father, from a father to a son. A spiritual legacy is being passed down. And it's a great principle for us in here, parents, in particular, dads taking the lead in this area. The most important gift that you and I can give our children is the gift of introducing them by word and deed 
to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How we do this, there's a number of ways that we can do this, but I think Psalm 78 is one of the best psalms to to show how to pass the torch, so to speak. I'm just going to touch on Psalm 78.5, which says this, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach their children. Quickly, three quick characteristics of passing on the spiritual legacy to your children. First and foremost, it says this, you have to know the Lord and His story personally. You have to know the Lord and His story personally. He established a testimony in Jacob. Uh, The Lord God established His story in Jacob's heart. You see, you and I can't pass on something that we don't know personally. Therefore, it begins with our personal relationship, our vertical relationship with the Lord. Secondly, we have to grow in the wisdom and understanding of God's Word. It says this, that He appointed a law in Israel. The law is God's Word, what He gave the nation Israel to lead, guide, and direct them in this world. And so you, as, you and I as, 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 as parents, as fathers and mothers, we need to know God's Word because we can't pass on what we don't know. And then finally, we see that it's our, our duty to teach it to your children. So parents, this is, this is an incredible reminder to us. We see Abraham pass it on to Isaac. We see Isaac pass it on to Jacob. And, and, and we need to do that with our children. So just take a step back and look at your life and what are you passing on to your kids? Now there's a ton of things that we can pass on to our children that are good. We, we can teach them how to love. We can teach them how to serve. We can teach them how to, you know, cook and we can teach them how to provide. But nothing is more important than first and foremost pointing them to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because it's here where the blessing is. Amen? All right. Secondly, we see most importantly is God's grace on display. Again, this is just a continuation of what we've been seeing throughout the Bible, in particular since Genesis chapter 3. Again, I love the way how the Lord speaks to Jacob. He doesn't reprimand him. He doesn't say, man, Jacob, you're a terrible person. You're you're a ruthless human being. You're a liar, you're a cheat, you're a thief. He doesn't say that. He speaks to him as words of grace and promise. And that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, Jacob, God is choosing Jacob to be the father of the nation of Israel. To be the father of the one in whom the Savior is going to come. He looks at Jacob and he says, this is my guy. Who in here would have picked Jacob as their guy? None of us would have, right? But again, it's not on what we see. It's not on the outward appearance, but it's on God working behind. And these promises the Lord God gives him in verses 13 and 15 are the same same promises as Genesis 12 he gave to Abraham. They are unconditional. If you look at that, you need to circle again where you see the words, I will and I am with you. Because this whole promise... This whole covenant is based on what God is going to do in Jacob, not what Jacob is going to do for God. And that is massively important. This is not a conditional promise. It's an unconditional promise. These promises and blessings are solely a work of God, of grace, that he's going to accomplish in Jacob's life. He doesn't tell Jacob to obey and do certain things, and then he might get the mantle of being the next patriarch and carry the covenant blessing. No, God is going to bless him Regardless of who Jacob is, but who God is. I will bless you. There are no conditions. So this is God and God alone who will unconditionally bring about His promise in Jacob's life and future generations. 
This is such great news to us. This is the grace of God, this undeserved, unmerited favor and blessing bestowed upon Jacob, which is also bestowed upon us. It's incredible. And it begins with God saving Jacob. And this is what we see right now. We see that God is saving Jacob. He's interrupting Jacob's life to bring him to faith, saving faith. See, there's no indication of Jacob seeking the Lord, as we've already pointed out. He was seeking the blessing, but not the one who gives the blessing. So therefore, the Lord has to burst into Jacob's life via a dream to get his attention, to get his focus on the one true Lord. And this is the pattern of salvation in all of Scripture, in all the Bible. It always begins with the Lord invading your life and my life with grace. And that's incredible news. I mean, think about it. First, it was Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sinned. And then God sought, sought after, seeked Adam and Eve and extended them grace. We see it with Abraham. Abraham was a pagan. He was worshiping the moon god from Babylonian. And God came in and handpicked Abraham and extended grace and mercy to him. Jacob, we see again, he's seeking a wife and running from his brother. He's not seeking the Lord here. And God rushes in and breaks through and saves Jacob. The Apostle Paul on his way to Damascus to kill Christians. And what does Jesus do? He intervenes. He seeks. Salvation is always initiated by grace from the Lord Himself. And it was the same with me and it was the same with you. If you know Jesus, the Lord is the seeker and not us. We are lost and without hope. Unless the Lord intervenes and interrupts our lives and the path that we're going on, we would still be dead in our sins and trespasses. But God doesn't leave us there. He's a God of grace. He is not lost. We are the ones lost in need of a Savior. And if the Lord doesn't seek us out first, then we would be stuck in our rebellion and sin. But again, we see God's grace right here on display. And it's a wonderful picture. Now on to the dream. What are we to think about this dream? How do we interpret it? Does it have anything to do with us? And the answer is a resounding, absolutely it does. Jacob gives us a little interpretation starting in verse 14 where when he uh, awakes from the dream. But before we get there, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever driven to a place at night that you've never been before? And then you, you, you go to sleep, you check in the hotel or it's a camping spot or whatever, and you go to sleep and the next morning you wake up and all of a sudden you're just surrounded by the glory of creation and you're just like, wow. I mean, this is the first time I went to Aspen uh, in, the, in the summer. We drove in at night, have never been to Aspen before. Uh, we got in our hotel room. Our hotel room was at the base of the, of the mountain. And the next morning we just woke up and I, walk, I walked on the balcony and we were just surrounded by the beauty and the glory of God's creation. These massive mountains that were just towering over us, the lushness of the greenery of the trees, the birds were singing, and I was just like, holy cow, this is awesome. Well, I didn't see that at night coming in. This is what happens to Jacob. And it's not so much about the physical creation around him, but it's what happened to his heart and to his soul. You see, he interprets this dream for us. He says in verse 14, when he awoke, he said, the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. When he laid down his head, his heart was dark. His heart was hard. He was spiritually dead. But after this dream and after God intervened, 
And the grace of God filled his heart. He woke up the next day and this is what he said. His soul was awakened to God and he cried out with a reverential feel, how awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God and the gates of heaven. See, that's what happens when God intervenes with his grace in our lives. From this point on, Jacob's trajectory of his life, in particular in 18 and 22, we'll look briefly, he responds by worship. But first, there's, there's even more commentary that we need to bring in here because Jesus commentates on this verse. In the New Testament, turn to, it's in John chapter 1. And here we see a clear picture of what Jesus said about how this is one storyline that all the books in the Old Testament, beginning with Moses, who we believe wrote Genesis, and all the prophets, he interprets them as scripture concerning himself. That these stories that we're reading are, are more than just good moralistic stories for us to, to read and understand and take these secondary principles from. But more importantly, these stories point us to Jesus. And we see this in John chapter 1 of the calling of Nathaniel. As you guys remember, Nathaniel, when we went through the book of John, Nathaniel's a skeptic. And uh, he's like, can anything good come from Nazareth? And, and Jesus meets him. His friend brings him along, introduces him to, to Jesus. Philip introduces him to Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, uh, here's, here's Nathaniel and a man who's no guile, as an upstanding, upright man. And Nathaniel's like, how do you even know me? You don't know me, Jesus. I've never met you before. And Jesus says, man, well, I saw you in your kind of secret place studying and meditating, and he, and he, and he, and he details that for Nathaniel. And Nathaniel says this. He says, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, and you are the King of Israel. And then Jesus answered him and said this in verse 50. Because I said to you that I saw you under a fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So here we see Jesus quote Genesis chapter 8. And what is he saying? He gives us a clear picture of what that verse means. And what he's saying is this. Jesus gives us the clarity that Jesus is saying that He is the only way to heaven and it's not by working or walking up the stairs that Jacob saw, but it's by believing in Jesus, the stairway of heaven in whom Nathaniel saw. Later in John fourteen six, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father except through Me. And so what we see here is we see this picture that, that heaven is up here and that we are down here. And there's a, there's a gap. And so the question is, well, how do we get to heaven? How do we, how do we fill that gap? And some say, well, it's, it's by climbing Jacob's ladder. It's cli- climbing Jacob's stairs. It's try harder and do better. And Jesus says, no, because the stairway is not a, a place that you find. The stairway is a person. And the person is Jesus himself. So again, what Jesus is saying here is that we are not saved by the ladder that Jacob saw or the staircase that Jacob saw. We are saved by the stairway that Nathaniel saw in John chapter 1, or we'll see. One said this, Jesus is not the man at the top of the stairs. He's the man at the bottom of the stairs. Jesus is not in heaven calling to you and me saying, hey, come up here, get up here as well as you can. No, Jesus came down and became man. He humbled himself to the point of death. He, he, he lived the perfect life in your place and my place. He died on the cross for your sin and my sin. He's not a man at the top of the stairs. He's a man at the bottom of the stairs. He is a friend of sinners. 
the Savior of those who are in need. And He is the one we turn to by faith to get us to the top of heaven. That's what's going on in Genesis chapter 28 that Jesus tells us. This week, as with every week and every day, we're surrounded by friends, we're surrounded by co-workers, we're surrounded by family who are like Jacob the night before God intervened. They're, they're, just, they're just wandering in the desert. They're, they're, they don't know that Jesus and God is in their midst. And we have an incredible privilege to introduce them to Jesus, the true staircase. And it's not that they don't see the evidence that God is all around us. Psalm 19 says the heavens and the earth declare the glories of God. And Romans chapter 1 says that God has made it known to them in their, in their, in creation. And in Romans chapter 2, he says he's made it known to them in their conscience. So it's not a lack of evidence. They're, they're, they know that there's a staircase. They know there's, there's something they should be looking for. And we have the incredible privilege to introduce them to the true staircase, the true king, the man, Jesus Christ. And so this, this week, be, be praying as we've been asking you for the past several weeks, be praying for those that you could, you could introduce the staircase to. You can introduce to Jesus. Ask him to come to our Easter gathering next week. It's a great way to extend an invitation to the stairway of heaven. And that will take us to our third and, and final point. We see a familiar response in verses 18 through 22. Jacob worships, he prays, and he gives. And here we see three responses coming face to face with the God of grace, starting in verse 18. It says this, So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar, and he poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. And so what do we see? We see when, our, when, when Jacob's heart is flooded with the gospel of grace, when he comes to saving faith, there's a response and the response is to worship. It's to set up an altar and worship. And this altar is going to be an altar of remembrance. It's a place where he's going to go on and find his wife and he's going to come back and he's going to see this altar made of stones and he's going to remember what the Lord did at that place. And, I, and what's interesting is this is the in the same area, the area of Haran, that Abraham first built his first altar to the Lord way back in Genesis 12 when the Lord met him. So he sets up this place of memorial, of worship. Now we all do this, don't we? We all have little things in, in our house that bring back remembrance of things. Uh, my grandma passed away this, this past, um, this past year and, and, um, I got this little like boat key thing from uh, that, um, turned on the boat because we used to go on family reunions and, and, uh, man, the one thing that I remember most about grandma and grandpa were those times that we spent at the lake house with all of our friends and family. And so I got this little bowl thing and it hangs right next to uh, my door when we walk out where our keys are. It's a, it's a thing to remember. It's just something that brings me back to the memories that I had with my family. Um, journaling, journaling. How many, how many of you guys in here journal? This is one thing that you guys do. You, you journal because why? Because partly is you want to remember what has taken place in your life. And in particular, when you journal from a Christian point of view, you're writing down prayer requests. You're writing down things that you like to see happen. And then when you go back through them over the years, you see, oh man, I remember when I was in this place and I was struggling. I had this prayer and the Lord answered it. And it causes you to worship. Well, back in ancient times, sometimes what they did, like as in here, is they, they set up stones of remembrance. 
to bring back those memories of what happened in that place. We, we sang earlier, the first song that we sang was Come Thou Fount. It's my favorite song. It's my favorite hymn of all, all time. I just love that song. But early on, when I was, when I was, when I just, just heard it, it has that thing. He says, here I raise my Ebenezer, right? Now, does that confuse anyone in here? Go ahead. When I was first, I was like, I was like, who is Ebenezer and how do you raise him? You know, that was like my thought when I'm saying, here I raise my Ebenezer. Well, Ebenezer actually referred to a, a, a stone altar like this one, altar of remembrance from coming from 1 Samuel. And it's when the, 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 the Israelites were saved from the Philistines. So they set up this altar of remembrance. So here I raise my Ebenezer is, is rocks being stacked as a, as an altar of worship, stone of memorial. So when you guys sing that song the next time, you're like, when, now you know, here I raise my Ebenezer, you know what you're, you're, you're singing to. So this is what he did. He, he, he worships. The grace of God floods his heart and he sets up a remembrance, a memorial of what the Lord did in his life then. So when he passes it back through, he could tell his kids or, or whoever he's worth with. Secondly, we see this prayer in verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God be with me and will keep me the way that I go, I will give him bread and to eat and clothing to wear so that I will come to him again in my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. So here we see that God, the first time we see that Jacob probably prays. So another thing that happens when the grace of God captures your heart, all of a sudden you have access to God the Father and you get to speak to Him. You get to pray for Him. Now this is Jacob's first prayer, and we see it's a first-time prayer because we see that in his prayer he's making a, a conditional prayer. If, Lord, you do this, then this will happen. Then I will follow you. And that's he's, he's still trying to understand fully what this gospel of grace is all about. And we've been there. Some of us are still there. Even though we're, we walk the Lord for 20, 30 years, sometimes we still pray this way, a conditional prayer, instead of just resting in the grace of God and, and saying when God gives us a promise and resting on that, He'll do it. I mean, I can remember praying even early on. It's like going into finals week. The college is in college. It's getting ready to end. we got about another month. Some of you college kids, I remember praying. It's like, Lord, I haven't studied at all for this test, but if you will give me an A... <clears throat> Then I'll, you know, then I'll go to church on a consistent basis, right? Those kind of prayers. We see this is the kind of prayer that, that Jacob is making, a conditional prayer. So he doesn't fully understand what the grace of God is, but here's the point. He's praying, and that's awesome. He's praying, and that's awesome. And we all grow in our prayer life as we mature in the Lord and as we understand what grace is. And then finally we see verse 22 that he gives. He says, and all that you give me, I will give you a full tent. You see, this is what Jacob remembers and, and, and understands now. That everything that he has, now right now he doesn't have much but the blessing, which is massive back in that day. He doesn't have a wife. He, doesn't, he just has these promises. I'm going to make you this nation and your, and, and your legacy is going to be the dust. You're going to have children and have the dust, the dust of the earth. But he doesn't have any of this stuff. But he understands that the Lord is going to give him this stuff. And he understands now that this is all a gift from God. That Everything that he's going to have from here on out is going to come from the Lord. Therefore, he's going to give back. And this is what happens to a person that gets just flooded with God's grace. Is now you become a dispenser of God's grace. You become the one who freely gives of your time, of your talent. And here he uses treasure. I will give you a tenth. Now this tithing is, is kind of Old Testament language. 
um, here, you know, most people say, well, I give a tenth. Why? Because well, that's what they gave in the Old Testament. And actually, if you look in the Old Testament, it's more like almost 27% after all the requirements of the law between your tithes and authoring required us. But when we get to the New Testament, it's not about a certain percentage of money. The New Testament, especially in Second in Corinthians, tells us this. That's about some, some categories that we are uh, to give, that we recognize that the Lord has given us everything that we have, so therefore we are to give back with a with a joyful heart. We're called to give generously, and we're called to give sacrificially, and that's going to look different from any of us, from all, uh, from each of us. It's not a percentage. Now I'm going to use percentages now to give you an understanding of what this means, but it's not about percentages; it's about your heart. For someone who's doing really well in life, you might give thirty percent of your of your income, or whatever it may be. That's not what you do. But for a single parent in here, it might be 1%. And the Lord is just as happy and just as satisfied from the 1% as He is from the 30%. Again, why? Because it's not about, again, percentage, but it's about your heart. It's about recognizing that God is the one who provides for you, therefore, you're one who gives back to Him. And so that's what's being taught here. This is where we see three familiar responses. One is a, we, is we worship. We remember what the Lord has done. Two, we pray, and three, that we give. And this is what we believe at the crossing. This is what it looks like at the crossing when we see a person is blessed, a person is saved. It's what happened with Jacob. It begins with an understanding that that we are only saved because of God's unconditional grace in our lives. He is the initiator. He is the one that breaks in and saves us. He is the one that's seeking us and we are not seeking him. And when we do that, when it, when that happens to us, our hearts are changed. Our hearts are alive. And all of a sudden we start to worship. We have places of remembrance of where the Lord has done certain things in our lives. We, we start to pray and then we start to give. Our lives now become a living sacrifice and they overflow with us giving and serving with our times, talent and treasure. This is what Genesis 28 is about. It's about the Lord passing on His blessings to Jacob. And eventually as we get to the New Testament, this dream, this stairway, the stairway we are informed is not a literal stairway, but it's a person. We get to God the Father. We get to heaven through Jesus Christ. He is our stairway to heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Genesis chapter 28. Lord, it's a very simple message. It's a message that you gave in thousands upon thousands of years ago to a man who was wandering in the wilderness to find his wife. You gave him this incredible vision of the stairway of heaven. And in that now moment, you saved him. And then thousands of years later, Jesus takes that story, those words, and informs us who the stairway truly is and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it shows us and informs us today, thousands of years later, that the way that we come to saving faith, the way that we reach heaven, is by believing in the stairway of heaven, which is you, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The true King of kings and Lord of lords. And so Lord, it is my prayer this morning that anyone who walks in today that is that is. That is like Jacob that is, is, is living in darkness, doesn't, doesn't know where the Lord is, is looking for a staircase to get to heaven. May they today find it in you. May they hear the words of Jesus in John 151 that 
that the staircase, the angels descending and ascending are on the Son of Man, which is Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.